Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey, it's Greg Hoffman from Take Command. And the best part about podcasts is they create a 25th hour in the day. Whenever I'm commuting, metro, car, even when I'm riding my bike around town. Although, in that case, one earphone only. Safety kids. I'm always listening to podcasts. And this offseason, you can get all the insights, all the news, all the analysis, and Logan and I occasionally make a joke or two in the Take Command podcast on demand so it fits in to your busy schedule. Follow Take Command in the Odyssey app or wherever you get your pods. It's time to Take Command with former NFL tight end Logan Paulson and former Commander's Beat reporter Craig Hoffman. Take Command podcast from Odyssey Sports. I'm Craig Hoffman. That is Logan Paulson. Welcome into the show. And Logan, uh, this is this is a tough one, obviously, uh, doing a show as we record this on Tuesday, the day after uh, DeMar Hamlin goes down in the Monday Night Football game. Um, as of this recording, we obviously... Uh, just know what everyone else has known at this point for a little under 12 hours uh, that he is in critical condition. We have not gotten the hopeful critical but stable, uh, which is obviously not ideal, uh, but is also better than hearing bad news. So um, I guess, Logan, uh, off the top here, just say that we are going to talk about uh, the Commanders-Browns game, do our pretty usual Wednesday podcast, tape review, this, etc. But we're not doing that flippantly. Um, we're doing that within the context of this is a podcast and people are coming to this podcast not for perspective on a larger type of thing. You're coming to this podcast because you want Commanders coverage and specifically you come to us because you want tape review on a Wednesday. And so there's nothing wrong with people for wanting that, um, you know, but it also uh, it feels silly and, and inhumane not to acknowledge that there's a larger context in the NFL right now that we are doing this within. And um, it's it's just scary, man. It's really, really scary. Yeah, it is scary. And, uh, you know, I think Ryan Clark, he was on TV last night. I think he put it like really eloquently, you know, like he – uh, Hamlin is like getting to live out his dream. You know, he's like, that's like the most exciting moment. One of the most exciting moments of his life, Monday night football, biggest game of the year, huge matchup. And like, that's like the last thing on your mind, you know, but unfortunately that's like a very, um, grizzly kind of, uh, byproduct of playing a violent sport, you know, like Shazier Everett, the kid from Buffalo who broke his neck, uh, you know, before I got in the league. So maybe 15 years ago now, like those things are always kind of looming and you don't think about it because it is a kid's game. It's a fun game. It's, it's, you know, you've been doing it for a very long time, but these are, um, these are very serious. There are very serious consequences to running into grown men full speed. And, you know, like uh, obviously what happened to him is like a one in a billion chance kind yeah, of thing. I mean, just it's something that's, you know, you've had some people say today, sorry to cut you off, but just real quick, like, oh, this is a part of football. Like this is not a part of football. Yeah. Like, this is, this is something that has never happened to our knowledge within the 103 year history of the NFL. Um, and is that just lucky? Maybe, but if, you know, if the odds are this low, this is this is an extremely rare occurrence and some confluence of effects that um, we've thankfully never seen and is, is not a part of the sport in any meaningful way 
unfortunately it still did happen um last night and now we are stuck to deal with the consequences and there are plenty of other that is not to excuse football so to speak because right. there, as you were saying uh, and letting you pick back up like there are plenty of scary and terrifying and life-altering types of things that can happen and have been a regular part of the sport for a long time yeah absolutely and like you know kind of to your point craig like you know when i got my cscs they talk about these uh cardiac infractions like as a as a part of the curriculum and yeah. one of the CSCS things they, is a training certification for those that don't know and one of the things they talk about is like you know watch out in baseball watch out in lacrosse because of the acute trauma of the ball on the chest and an unpadded chest is it's a it's a it's it's not likely but it, it's more likely to occur in those sports so they don't even mention it in the context of football and I, so obviously a very very unique situation with him and like uh, you know regardless of how unique or or special the situation is like you know our our thoughts and prayers go out to his family because like i can only imagine you know watching my son or watching a loved one go go like have that happen to them in nine minutes of the whole thing you know and uh i just think it's important that our thoughts are with him and his family you know he does have a charity go check that out yeah and uh, you know support that if uh, if you feel that's appropriate but yeah, man. Um, thoughts and prayers go out to him, and it, it is a it's a scary thing, and it makes you just unfortunately be very grateful for the things in your life. And it shouldn't take an event like that, but but it does. It does. And the last thing I'll say real quick before we get on to the the crux of the podcast, um, and I think this is actually a nice precursor as well to what we'll talk about, which is going to involve a lot of criticism of a football team that hasn't played very well. Um, and that is the same same thought that I am going to open my show with uh, today on the Team 980, which these are human beings that we're talking about. Yeah. And like, you know, it's easy for me to look across my screen to, to Logan and see a human being that, that's become a very good friend of mine and like former player. And like, yeah, of course, Logan Paulson, the human being, he's right there. The face mask is off. The helmet's off. Um, but so often, whether it's players and how we talk about them, oh, that guy's a bum. Like you wouldn't you would never say that to someone right. about pretty much anything else. You wouldn't say that if your plumber did a bad job. Um, you know, you, you just, you, there's, there's more of a human being and a humane element to that. And especially, um, frankly, as we've gotten into the YouTube space and a lot of comments are left about Scott Turner, um, you know, yeah. do I think Scott's particularly good at his job by an NFL standard? No, but I'm not going to sit here and call him a bum or like be disrespectful of the work that he puts in and the knowledge that he has and realize that if you ever get to the point that you're a coordinator in the NFL, you have an elite level of knowledge. Um, it's just a really hard task. And regardless of that, good, bad, or indifferent, like that's a human being there. And when we talk about fire this guy or whatever that guy, like that's someone with a family and this is their job and we should be cognizant of that and how we speak about it. And yeah. I realize it's easier as a fan to get into a comment section and let loose, um, whether it's behind a, a, a pseudonym, screen name, or, or your real names on there. Like it, it's easier to do that. Uh, we have one step closer, and certainly for you as someone who's in the building, like have that step closer. And you know, sometimes when people will say, "Well, Logan's not hard enough," and it's like, "No, Logan's been there, and Logan's a human being who knows how hard it takes." And by the way, he's a good man. So like he should that that is a credit to you to to keep that humanity. It's something that I try to do certainly as well. Um, in my position with my experience as a reporter and just try to be an empathetic like human being that doesn't mean we can't be critical it doesn't yeah. mean that we can't you know that someone should necessarily even keep the job uh in, in a particular case we just shouldn't be flipping about it we shouldn't be flipping about firing people we shouldn't be flipping about throwing people out of the league um we shouldn't be flipping about any of it because these are these are human beings trying to do their job their job happens to be in a public sphere that there's a lot of commentary on and uh i would just say that it shouldn't take something that happens like this where the humanity is forced in, into our faces and kind of slaps us across the face and says like hey this is a human being to remember that 
we can be better at all times. And I will say we, um, the collective we, um, can be better at all times. And, and I hope that we can certainly do that. Um, and unless you have anything to add, Logan, we can kind of get to, uh, no, I think get, that's, I think you said that very nicely. And, you know, again, just our thoughts are thoughts and prayers are with him and his family. And, yeah. you know, hopefully, you know, obviously this podcast is coming out on Tuesday or we, we record on Tuesday. Hopefully we get some good news and, uh, you know, all that good stuff. So absolutely. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. All right, uh, Take Command Podcast from Odyssey Sports. I'm Craig Hoffman. That is Logan Paulson. And with that, uh, you know, the thoughts with DeMar Hamlin and, and thoughts on the situation as a whole uh, said, Logan, let's get into the tape from Sunday. Um, obviously, an incredibly disappointing offensive performance. Now with the context of being able to watch the film, yeah. what stands out between coach, coordinator, receivers, running backs, O-line? I'm sure that there is plenty to critique on all levels. But like, if you try to circle the biggest issue with with why they only scored 10 points, what is it? Well, obviously, I mean, like the highest, the the lowest fruit to pick here is the turnovers, right? You just can't turn the football over three times when you're a team that's walking a very fine margin for error. I think to kind of get to delve into that concept a little bit more from a schematic standpoint, I really didn't appreciate the kind of segregation of the offense. You know, like these are our running formations. These are our running personnel groupings. And, you know, like – you know, since I talked to you yesterday and since we did the show after the after the game, I've had uh, the opportunity to talk to coaches and reporters. And apparently that's been a big criticism of Scott, like around the building just generally. So I think that that's also important to kind of recognize is that, you know, as frustrating as, as it is for fans, there are people in the building. There are people in the media that are very close to the team that also express that same frustration because you look at kind of the formula where they're the offense looks its best. You know, I, I call your attention to the first half of the Atlanta game, the first drive of the Atlanta game, you know, the touchdown to Bates in the Atlanta game, the second half of the New York Giants game, like where the offense is really clicking and rolling with a consistent kind of tenor. Like they're running the football, they're play actioning, they're, it's out of the same formations. There's not this distinct kind of separation of we're running our play, we're running, we're running the football and now we're passing the football. And when the offense is at its worst, you know, I look at the, the uh, the Dallas game, the first Dallas game, right? Uh, elements of the uh, the Detroit game, right? Like that's that's when they're that is when that's what's happening. There's a total segregation of the offense, and obviously, like I have to say this every time we talk about this kind of stuff. My bias is is one that comes from my experience, and that is a critical element of the offenses that I played in. And a bad offenses, in my opinion, don't don't integrate the offense well. And Scott didn't integrate the offense well. Yeah, and I, I would say, like, sure, there are different ways to do this in the NFL, but I think it's easy to say, like, that's not a bias towards your experience when this 
team has done that at times this year. Right. This yeah. team has done a good job at times of mixing it up and being unpredictable and using smaller personnel to run the football and using bigger personnel to throw the football. And it was supposed to be a feature of this offense, not a bug. Right. It was supposed right. to be something that their versatility was something that made it special and made it so that they were more effective um, than they would be if they were just kind of running pretty vanilla stuff. Like they could be unpredictable with personnel and formations because of some of the unique pieces that they have. And instead that became almost a liability um, in not using that stuff and obviously becoming as predictable as you're saying. My question to you would be, how is there not some kind of quality control on this? Because it's one thing for Scott Turner to fall into this trap and to kind of get into a mode of like, all right, we're going to run. Let's get our run people out there. Run. Let's get our, all right, time to pass. Let's get our pass personnel out there and pass. Um, yeah. But at some point, whether it's the head coach, whether it's someone else, you know, Zampezi, the quarterback coach, Drew Terrell, the wide receivers coach, I don't need to name every coach, but like someone on the offensive staff down to the quality control coaches, um, how is there not a better process in place to prevent them from falling into that trap? You know, I don't know for sure. I haven't talked to the staff specifically, but from what I understand, like uh, like uh, Matt Scout, for example, is an excellent offensive line coach and knows more football than I'll ever know in my entire life and has probably forgotten more football than I'll ever know, right? He is a very bright dude that I have a ton of respect for. But what I've heard from people around the building, he is very, he's a very kind of yes man. Like the, the, the coordinator presents what he wants to do. And Matt Scout doesn't say, in the same way that Bill Callahan did, for example, like, we're not doing that because it's hard for the offensive line. Matt says, I am a good enough coach, and I will find a solution for that, which this, I respect. This is a good This is a good solution. I'll figure out how we execute it. Yeah, I'll figure out how we execute it, right? He, he is the guy who's the solution provider to the coordinator. And obviously, like with Bill Callahan, for example, um, he would come and he would drastically change the scope of the game plan, right? He would kind of say, we're not doing that pass protection because it's too hard. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. And – Obviously, there's disadvantages and advantages to both, but I think having a little bit of friction and a little bit of kind of dissenting opinion in the room, because I think Zampezi is also a very bright dude, but I also think he, at least in my conversations with him, strikes me as a guy who's very like, oh yeah, I'll find a solution. I'll, I'll coach the quarterback up to get that done. It's not like, is that the best thing to do? Because you know they, they're very traditional. like the off they, they defer to the offensive coordinator, which right. again, there is advantages and disadvantages to that, but I do... I think if, again, if I was the OC, I would want coaches and coordinators who kind of said, do we really love this as much as we think? Like, think about, you know, the, the left guard here. Can he handle this protection? Can he do this in this situation? Right. Well, or what to about me, it's this? not even that. It's like, yeah. hey, we're predictable here. Yeah. Like, how do you not have so, so a I guess defensive coach come in and be like, hey, man, like, you're running the ball out of all these heavy, tight formations. Like, maybe maybe mix it up. Yeah, I think that's one of the things, one of the advantages of a bye week or a short week is you do do a little bit of cross-scouting, but in a normal work week, you don't have enough time to do that. You're so focused on your side of the ball, right? And so I do think, again, like this is one of those things where, you know, you have a little bit of a different voice in the room, in the building, in that offensive staff room. We kind of say, do we love this as much as we think we love it? Can we get to some different passes out of this or some different protections? And I think that would probably be, advantageous i think you know if in, in the context of this group now i've been a part of offensive staffs where everyone's got an opinion and like nothing gets done you right. need to have like a balance of both obviously so i think that to me is one of the things that sticks out it's like instead of being like hey 
we're, we're we seem to be running only out of these formations when we're prepping in the week. Can we get some passes in? It's like guys are like, I need to solve these problems to support Scott's vision, you know, as opposed to getting a little bit more of a dialogue about it. And like I said, you can go either way. But I think that to me is something that I would look at if I was wrong. If I did want to keep Scott on as offensive coordinator, it's finding someone that can you know, stir the pot a little bit and challenge some of these assumptions and assertions um, and, you know, be the self-scout guy, be the quality control guy, be that guy who's kind of like, hey, man, we got this crazy tendency here. Can we get that fixed? And, um, and again, like, that's just making sure you get the right people and maybe changing the structure of that offensive room a little bit. Yeah. Um, all right. How did Carson play? Yeah. Uh, I mean, surprise, surprise, like not very well. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think Carson would probably tell you that to his, to your face, you know, yeah, like I, Carson has said that multiple times. Uh, but yeah. I, I just figured I'd ask it open-ended, you know, because yeah. sometimes, sometimes the tape can be, you know, Hey, not as bad as it, we initially thought, uh, or like, no, nah, it was, it was pretty, pretty, and, uh, and, pretty rough. And like, cause dude, you're talking about execution of throws, like obviously the ones into the ground, the ones four feet over guys head, yeah. like. It was pretty bad. Don't don't yeah. need it. don't need the tape to tell us that. But from even like really, I guess the enhancement of watching the tape is like from his decision making standpoint because yeah. that was the thing that we were all hoping had improved. And if it didn't, yikes! Right. Um, and that and that would help kind of evaluate was it the right decision that went poorly or was it uh, a misguided decision? And also, I, I will say this real quick before we get to the kind of the fuller answer of how did Carson play. Um, I've heard a couple of folks say that like he actually looked pretty good in practice. So it's just hard. Like sometimes you get in the game and you stink. Um, but he in practice last week, like obviously the San Francisco game was one thing. It wasn't quite as much prevent as some fans seem to think. Like yeah. it wasn't like they just dropped back the whole time. Um, there was they did some, bring some pressure. Of, yeah. yeah. They, they did some stuff. Um, but ultimately in practice last week, it wasn't like he was throwing balls in the dirt all week. Right. Um, so when he gets out of the game and starts doing that, you're like, what is this? Where did this come from? And uh, obviously by then it was too late. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's like a, as a performance coach, there is an element of like anxiety that comes with yeah. doing it in the, the game. Yeah. Dotson curve. Yeah. And I feel like in this example, like those throws in the dirt are throws he's made a thousand times, but you're just a little bit nervous, especially after the pick. Right. And even the first throw he has in the game is in the dirt is over William's head. And I think that gets in your, you know, you've been in, you've played sports. I've, you know, I've played for a long time. You make a mistake and it lingers in your mind and you're like, don't do that again. And it kind of compounds. Right. And I felt like there was an element of that to this game for him. He just kind of kept compounding mistakes and he went on the, obviously the long drive. I think he made some really nice throws, really good reads. You saw some of the things that you, you get excited about when you talk about Carson Wentz, but I think on the whole, it just wasn't there for him. And, you know, like even like, let's, let's look at that, that ball that he throws in the dirt, right? The first play of the game. Like if he completes that ball, it's probably a first down. You're probably at first and 10. And then maybe Scott gets into a different calling sequence as opposed to putting you on this, on this lower percentage quarter out versus man to man coverage. You know, like that's, that's an NFL throw. You should make that throw, all those kind of things, but at least you can kind of stay in the rhythm of your offense. You can stay in a rhythm as a play caller and he did that. He did that again when they're backed up. He missed the back, and that would have been probably a first down as well. He missed a couple of checkdowns on both on uh, on both of the second uh, the the, Last the two second and third. Yeah, he he missed checkdowns like where he, the ball's just probably got to go there, and um, those are bad decisions. You know, those aren't aren't effective decisions. And understanding, you know, especially in the first half, how well how well the defense is playing, leading on them a little bit. He just didn't do that, and I think. Uh, 
yeah, I can't say that he he did a great job outside of a couple of plays here and there. I, I do have to kind of acknowledge this criticism. You know, Miles Garrett came out and said, like, we knew we were going to get some opportunities for sacks and pressures because of the longer developing pass concepts. And that was true, 1,000%. So when I look at Scott and the offensive staff, when you're calling those longer developing pass concepts, not only are they longer developing in the in the in the in the plays that they did call, mm-hmm. they are lower percentage throws. Like they're way down the field on like go balls and posts and deeper stuff. And I know, you know, there's this expectation that you make those throws, but you don't kind of you don't like traditionally live with those throws. Those are, you know, five to seven plays of your offense. It's not every time there's a third down running super deep and so like for example in the in the third quarter um terry smokes ward on a quarter post and he's wide open and you're like wow why is the ball going there but carson's getting sacked right he can't get the ball out he looks like he's flummoxing around and you know like the backside's a 20-yard dig the the number two receiver to the backside has a go it's just like these long developing concepts so I think one of the things that we talked about yesterday on your show was this idea that, you know, like is Scott supporting him with the play calls? Like that was the, that was the assumption that we had. And, right. you know, I understand game flow dictates certain things. I understand all that, but I just felt like you, you, you put this man out there. Like it wasn't like put him in the kiddie pool. It was like in the deep end, two hand shove. Let's see what happens. And right. And that's the problem is like, he was put out there under the guise that it was going to be Carson in the Taylor offense. And that would help him be the best version of himself. And this offense be the best version of itself that you could get all the stuff that Taylor had, which I think was misguided. Certainly in hindsight, it looks very misguided, uh, but also get the upside of what Carson had. And, you know, I, I think it's also something that, that folks need to understand is like, we talk about some of the, the throws available with Carson in there versus Taylor. We're not just talking about 45, 50, 60 yard throws down the field. We're talking about being able to throw an out route to deep right from the left hash. Yeah. Like that throw is not available to Taylor and it's not available to most quarterbacks, but it's available to Carson. The problem is, is Carson throws it sometimes. And um, yeah, sometimes it works. And, and sometimes you're like, no, oh, man, oh, yeah. come on, man. Just. The, the, the five yard over the balls where that ball needs to go. Um, and what's, what's interesting is it seems like Scott was kind of thinking like, oh yeah, these throws are available. Let's throw, let's call them right. all the time. And it's like, no one does that. They don't do that with Rogers. They don't do that with, you know, any other quarterback with any kind of arm strength. Like Mahomes isn't doing that. Think of yeah. when you watch Patrick Mahomes play quarterback. That ball gets out so fast all the time. Right. And then if it doesn't, he starts scrambling around, and that's when you see some of the bigger plays down the field. But even deep stuff tends to happen in rhythm. Like, I mean, think of think of the touchdown of Diami in the Tennessee game. Not necessarily the super long bomb, but the the slot fade. That ball's out quick. Yeah. And, and deep plays can happen like that on a regular basis. And then obviously you also have the concept that you don't need to throw the ball 60 yards to get a chunk play. Um, and that's, that is where I think they overrated that element of Carson's game a little bit. And when I say they overrated it, like they overused it. And Scott yeah. just like couldn't help himself in calling that stuff when very clearly the best path forward with Wentz was to run an offense similar to what you're running with Taylor, which is where, by the way, Wentz was successful last year with Indianapolis. And there's a, there's, I've said this before about Scott, 
And again, I am saying this very much in a professional like criticism, not as a person. I don't know Scott Turner as a person at all. Um, he seems very cordial at the podium and all those kinds of things. No idea what he's like away from football, whatever. But there's an arrogance to him as a play caller um, that I think is has, has come up a lot this year. And again, that's not to say he's an arrogant person who thinks he's better than anyone else. But there is like a, this is going to work because I know it works on paper right. to some of his calls that just belies the reality of his offensive line, his quarterback's decision-making, his quarterback's accuracy, and the general game flow and whether or not that play has been actually properly set up by the success or failure of the rest of the plays that he's called to that point. Yeah, I think that's that's a, that's a really interesting point. Like, uh, you know, like he, on the, on, the, on the last drive of the game, they're kind of calling this like pylon concept or what I would call pylon. So you run a quarter, by number two, and then you run a deep quarter, like a super deep quarter, like run into the front pylon of the end zone, no matter where you are on the field. So it, it almost looks like a go, um, just the angle is a little different. And they they called that play, I think, two or three times in the last sequence, and it's open, right? It's it's open, mm-hmm. and but like that is a tough throw to make. It's very very tough. You've got them at like a full slot split, right? So. One of the things that I also would like to call attention to here is in other offenses I've been in, you throw that route off of play action because Mm -hmm. the protection's better, the timing's better, the receiver can kind of inside stem, work vertical, get get out. They're running it as like a drop back concept, which I, I don't watch every team in the NFL. Let me just be frank with that. But I don't see a lot of teams doing it as a drop back concept because it's the timing and the spacing gets really tight to the sideline. And you're asking the quarterback to throw a ball 60, 60 yards in the air for a completion. And you do that twice. And I think if, if, if the fans remember, it's the one where Carson steps up in the pocket, Sam Cosby pushes, I think Clowney passed, he steps up, there's a huge void. And then Carson kind of javelins the ball to Jahan and it either like one bounces or hits Jahan like right in the hands and it's right on top of the ground. Right. Right. And that is the pylon concept. And even with this kind of space of the pocket, like that throw is exceptionally challenging. And it's an exceptionally challenging catch because the receiver is running away with the ball. So kind of to your point, like on paper, this might be open, but what is the actual probability of the receiver catching this ball before he runs out of bounds, given the split that he's at before the, before the ball is snapped. And what is the chances that the quarterback makes this very, very challenging throw? Because another thing to think about, it's always easier to hit a receiver if they're coming to you, right? Think about like a dig across the middle, like they're coming into your vision. They're not running away from you. That's why like corners and stuff tend to be a little bit dicey because like you need a lot of reps to get good at them. That's why the the first, the second interception to Curtis is a little frustrating because he's running away from the quarterback almost right in front of him. So mm-hmm. he, how deep is he? There's no angle for the throw. It becomes really, really challenging. And so that's kind of what, to your point, I think, sticks out is those are that might work right draw it up oh yeah that's a good idea possible and probable are two different things but that's hard on the quarterback that's hard on the pass catcher that's hard on the o-line and i i I would have to imagine there's easier ways to get to that stuff you know and i look at other offenses that those, those concepts are run but they're run in the context of a different protection a different play pass a different boot action like it's all designed to make it easier for the thrower and the pass catcher as opposed to more challenging. 
Yeah. And, and I think what results is like this very disjointed, no rhythm offense. And that was something that was so jarring in the Green Bay game when Taylor took over was all of a sudden the offense had a rhythm. Right. And that was something that, by the way, didn't really leave even when it became less effective. It felt like the offense was in rhythm. It just wasn't good. Like, it wasn't productive. That's a great You're point. Like, That's a great oh, point. okay, I kind of get how this is supposed to work. God, I wish they would do it better. Oh, son of a gun, they got a holding penalty. Oh, they got a minus two on a rush. Like, oh, Taylor can't really drive that throw. It's incomplete. But it felt like there was a rhythm and a purpose to it. And with Carson from preseason through those first six games – to and basically all of those first six games like there were stretches where it worked and maybe I guess the second half of Detroit it felt a little rhythmic at times but even in Jacksonville it's like okay that was nice how sustainable is this right and then you get to Taylor all of a sudden it's like whoa this looks harmonious and it was so disjointed on Sunday against Cleveland Um, even that 21 play drive like didn't you're like wow we're still going huh like it didn't. It didn't feel like a lot of high really clicked like on. A lot of third and longs. Yeah, a lot of tough throws. Like yeah, it tough. wasn't. It wasn't good. Um, it, it's you know. But as we said the other day, I think we said this on the the radio show segment. Uh, which by the way, if you're listening on Take Command, uh, and you you missed that, uh, we put it up as a bonus episode in the Take Command feed as well. Um, uh, shout out producer Matty Bo for that one. <laughs> uh, but he uh, you know, if it's a 21 play drive by nature, it wasn't great. Right. Like you just you just got lucky enough a bunch of times, which is why you yeah. never see him. If it had been great, it wouldn't have taken twenty one plays to, to cover that amount. Hey Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseballs and boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Uh, And so ultimately with this offense forward like that's kind of the question ron's got to ask it's like what are we looking for how do we get it in terms of a rhythmic offense that achieves the goals that i want to achieve as a head coach if i want to be this run first you know time of possession team can we find a quarterback who can operate with that uh can have some of the throws down the field it's going to be smart and diligent with the football because it's obviously another huge part of what you said at the top. Like the number one thing is the turnovers. And clearly, uh, as Ron acknowledged on Monday, like they thought Carson could be that guy uh, after his year last year where he had, what, 20, 27 and 7, 29 and 7 yeah. uh, and touchdown interceptions. And, uh, and it hasn't been him in this offense to say the least. Uh, in terms of the O line play, how did they, well, how did well, they hold we're, up? We're, or, we're, yeah, I just want to elaborate one, one quick thought there. So another thing that, with Taylor came into the into the offense, they got into kind of this intermediate passing game, mm-hmm. and they get away from like these deep drop back shots, which I, I think Scott wants to get to because that's what like the Air Coriel offense is kind of built around. Like, get the ball down the field, open your intermediate stuff up with that off of the big play. But with Taylor, they got into a lot of mesh, a lot of quick game, a lot of different stuff. And again, like you, you said, the offense was on rhythm. And a little bit of it is because Taylor was just getting the ball where it's supposed to go. And I look at 
Scott, and again, that's another kind of weird thing that when Carson's in there, you know, I don't know why, but you get away from the play action, which is good for you. You get away from kind of running it out of the the running play action out of your run formations, right? You, you, all these different things you get away from. You got away from duo. You only ran it twice in the game or three times in the game. Then you get away from the intermediate stuff, and it's like, why did you leave all that? Like that stuff is not as high. It's not as it's not going to like you know you're not going to win the lottery with that stuff, but you're also not going to go broke with that stuff because it's more consistent. It's a little bit easier for the quarterback to digest that and execute yeah. that consistently. So it, it's it's weird because it's like three factor. You know, it's like you're away from the play action, you're away from your best runs, and you're away from the 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 dropback stuff that you've been really good at this year. Like I don't understand. And again, I don't understand why that is. I, I don't understand it. My guess is Carson doesn't like being under center. Um, and they don't like him under center because his footwork isn't very good under center. Mm-hmm. That's that's my best guess. And that's kind of one of those things that sometimes I feel like it's a forestry situation where <laughs> coaches... and I, It was funny. I was actually talking about this with Rachel last night um, because she is like... My wife is someone who didn't watch any football before me and now is stuck in this <laughs> this incredibly immersed world. And so we'll talk about certain things and she just asks these very obvious questions, which I really appreciate because she's an incredibly insightful person. And so she, she'll just be like, well, why don't they do this? And I'm like, that is a great question. They could use you in the building to ask the obvious questions that they should have much better answers to. And one of those is like, Hey, why don't they like, how does that happen? How do they only get Terry X number of targets? Like, isn't he awesome? Didn't they just pay him a bunch of money? Yes. Yes, they did. Why don't they get, get him the ball? And it's like, well, because the coverage, it's like, figure it out, man. Like you paid him $70 million because he's awesome. You paid Curtis because he's awesome. Like figure out how to get those guys the football. And it's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, Carson doesn't like gun. Okay, well, everyone else does. And I understand you want to make your quarterback comfortable, but it's not like he's incompetent out of the gun. And by the way, or under center, and by the way, these longer play action fakes, even if his footwork's a little off, will make his life a lot better. And, oh, by the way, by the way, number two, it's not like he's been killing it from shotgun this year anyway. So I I think it's like things like that where you lose huge chunks of your offense because you're focused on this one detail and you let that one thing override all the other more important data points. And I think that happens frequently in a lot of sports. Uh, um, and I think it happens a lot of times in business where like chief executives who aren't as locked in on the details might miss something. Like it is the kind of thing that happens in the world all of the time in many, many different places in many different varieties. It is just so painfully obvious in football because you have scoreboards with wins and losses and you have very trackable statistics from targets to yards to whatever for a guy like Terry, let's say, um, where you come out of a game, you're just like, how did he not get the ball more? Like, how, how does that happen? Because it would seem like if your job is to score points, getting your best players the ball would be the primary focus. And instead, it winds up being something more like, no, nah, well, we can't do that because Carson would have to be under center. And that's, we prefer him in Maybe. the gun. Maybe. You know, it's stuff like that. And it's just like those those signals yeah. get crossed a lot. You know, it's interesting. You reminded me of a story. Uh, I remember when I was in Atlanta, I got to talk to, to Matt Ryan quite a bit. 
And Matt Ryan's an awesome dude. Really like charismatic leader, like exactly what you want at the position. Matt, you know, please like, retire so you can come on the podcast. What did I say that out loud? <laughs> really, Just really, plays really good dude. And I remember him in the meeting was uh, with the offensive coordinator. Um, he's the head coach of Texas now. Maybe just got fired. Uh, it doesn't matter. Sark? And Sark, yeah. And Sark would be in the meeting and be going over stuff. And, and Matt would just be like, hey, man, take that out. I don't want to do that. Take it out. I don't like that. And Sark wouldn't even, like, wouldn't even think twice, just throw the paper on the ground. Okay, cool. We're done with that. But, like, for me, I was like, that actually pairs with this other thing. So I remember sitting down with Matt at lunchtime. We were talking about Kyle, Kyle Shanahan. Yeah. And Kyle it was, and he was like, oh, I used to have wars with Kyle. But I was like, well, why? Well, they're both very strong personalities. I think that's obvious. But Kyle, essentially, the crux of the argument, would force him to do things that he didn't want to do for the benefit of the offense. And, right. you know, it made it made Matt uncomfortable. And But it, I think it also, that's the year that Matt was like the MVP of the league. Yeah, he was the MVP of the league, and they went to the Super Bowl. And if it wasn't for Kyle losing his mind up 28-3 <laughs> um, and some bad luck on top of it, they yeah. would have won the Super Bowl. By the way, Sark well, is still at Texas. Uh, yeah. So good right. job, Sark. Yeah, good job, Sark. So... I look at that and I say, like, that is something that, you know, I, I, we talk about Kyle a lot, but that's, like, where my experience resides is with him. And, like, so he would do stuff like that. He'd push, the, push good players to do stuff they weren't necessarily comfortable with. Like, I remember Muhammad Sanu, like, didn't start for a little bit because Kyle wanted him to block and Muhammad didn't want to do it. So, you know, when that happened, it was, like, a big deal. But that was his vision. If you didn't abide by the vision, it didn't matter how good you were, you were going to get there. The other thing he would do is he would – be very fastidious about finding ways to get people targets very fastidious like he would say how do we formation this to get julio here and line him up in this position and short motion this so he's the third guy and that was his deal and so again looking at like terry you know the coverage dictating where the ball goes that's true that's 100 percent right. accurate but Kyle would take it a step further and be like, in this situation, they're going to be in this coverage. We're going to be in this formation and we're going to call this play because I know this coordinator that way. Right. Because you're trying, well, you're calling the play because you're anticipating what the defense is going to sure. do. So if, like, if you think the defense is playing cover two, so you're calling this play to beat cover two, why not have your primary read or whichever, you know, if you think, Hey, they're probably going to shut this down. Let's make it so that Terry is the third read, um, you know, because we actually think that's where the ball is going to go based off situation, whatever. Right. There are ways. And the other thing, too, is like hand him the bleeping ball. <laughs> like, you know, Terry gets 12 yards on a reverse in the first half and you just go, hey, you know what you could do? Run that again. You know, yeah. and, and there's things like that where it's just like, OK, well, at the end of the day, the most important thing is getting these guys the ball. Um, let's just simplify it. Let's just hand it to them. Like let's yeah. let's run some more screens. Let's run some whatever. And you know, I feel bad for Scott on a, on a little bit because like he tries to get that screen going to Jahan in the second half, and John drops it, and the whole yeah. drive dies. Um, so that was that was a pretty key play in the game because it felt like if the Commanders were ever going to get some rhythm, like that was the drive. They had started to move it a little bit. They're coming off the the drive to end the third quarter. Jahan drops it, and that's basically you know that's your ball game because the offense never looks you know like it has any signs of productivity again. So. Um, these things are hard, um, and that that's something that I, I think is obviously always worth stepping back and saying. It's like, these things are hard. These things are very convoluted in the heat of the moment during a game, but it's why you need systems in place to, to, to have checks on you. It's why you need, you know, our, uh, you know, our common sense coach, if you will, to come in and be like, hey, 
uh, we should get the ball to Terry more. And that person's job is to do that on Monday and then on Wednesday and then on Friday. And then when he's got no targets through the first quarter on Sunday to tap Scott on the shoulder between quarters and have like a little piece of paper that says Terry targets with a big zero on it, right. just put it in front of him. Like, I don't know if that thing exists uh, or, or doesn't and, and how many teams it exists on or doesn't. It just seems like that would be a smart thing to do. And obviously this offense has struggled at times this year because they have not been able to get their playmakers the ball and instead have relied on uh, a scheme that hasn't always been executed super well for a variety of reasons that we've talked about on probably a hundred podcasts since April when we launched. So there's that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I just, I was just thinking about Justin Jefferson up in Minnesota Yeah, and how they, you don't get that many or Cooper cup in LA. You don't get that many touches without game planning that right. fastidiously. So I, I just wanted to call attention to that one For more sure. time. All right, last thing quickly on the offense, because um, this will also lead into the other discussion that I want to have on the offensive side moving forward uh, and really kind of set up Friday's pod, although by then we'll know who the starting quarterback is. Um, but how did the offensive line play? Um, and how much of that has to do with the play calling versus you know their own individual performances against a somewhat talented uh, defensive line in Cleveland, certainly on the edges. Dude, I think they did a great job. I mean, they did a really nice job. And I think, uh, you know, Cosby was probably, I think one of the most, this is one of the most more impressive performances he's had because he's playing guard for some of it. He's playing tackle. In the two minute he's playing tackle, he's totally locking down to Javion. But I know he has a false start there, which is that great. But his ability to kind of set and you, you just, all the things you liked about him coming out were on display. His power, his aggressiveness, his footwork, you know, like someone runs a spin move, he spins with it, and it just looks like he's a dancing bear out there. So that, again, gives you confidence saying, like, maybe they don't need a tackle. Maybe they can get away with a, a, a better guard situation next year in the draft if this is kind of a weak year for tackles. You know, we were talking about drafting yeah. tackles, and it's not doesn't appear to be the strongest tackle draft on, on record, so maybe you don't want to waste those resources there. But that was good to see. Um, I thought Leno actually had a really, really, really solid plan for Miles Garrett, kind of working this this angle set to a jump set. So getting Garrett to start his rush and then jumping him once he was getting ready to throw his move was really, really nice. And obviously you're going to give up pressures to one of the best defensive players in football, but he deserves a lot of credit for that. Uh, Wes is very physical. Norwell did a good job in pass protection. I think they, they blocking and pulling, they did a great job. So uh, – Obviously, it wasn't a perfect sheet, but it's very hard to be a perfect sheet and compared to what they have been doing. I think they you got to give them their their flowers when they have a game like this. What happened in the run game where they went? Robinson was averaging like seven three a carry in yeah. the first half. Um, at one point, I whenever it was that they went for it on fourth and one with the stupid pitch play. Um, so to, okay, all right, everyone just pumped. I've been getting a ton of heat about this. Like that's no, not a, that's. Okay, we're gonna talk about this. Okay, okay. We, got, we got like five minutes. We got five minutes. Got, okay. Yeah, I mean, I got, I got time. <laughs> so to me, that is not a bad call. That's a well-designed play. It's not a bad call. Everyone's expecting you to run it inside, like some type of dive. Like so, that is the same exact play that they ran with Brian Robinson versus Atlanta that went for twenty yards. You guys remember that? It was like fourth and one or third and one. It's a pitch play on the edge. They call it truck. You pull the tight end out. You pull the tackle out. You get numbers to the perimeter. It ends up being a big play. It's the same run they had against um, San Fran on like a second and eight. It's it's a good play, and the way they designed it was really good. The issue is in the execution. Terry McLaurin, who is maybe the most consistent player on the roster, doesn't block the safety. 
the guy that's literally standing right in front of him, and like, he gets a little confused, whatever. But I mean, if I'm the receiver coach, I'm like baffled on the sideline because the the first rule on truck is you block if you're the, if you're in that little bunch. So it's Curtis. He's going to block the defensive end. The next receiver blocks the guy over the over Curtis, who's Terry. Terry's going to block the guy over Curtis. And for whatever reason, with the motion, there's a guy traveling with Bates. He says, I have to block that guy. So he puts hand on the safety and then goes and blocks the the, the linebacker or whoever's running with Bates. Mm-hmm. And that's the guy who ends up making the tackle. Curtis gets 5,000 gold stars because he has an excellent down block on Miles Garrett. They are to the perimeter. Leno and Bates to the perimeter with like two guys out in front of them. That is going to be, if not a touchdown, it's going to be a huge play. So I see that and I say, golly, everyone says it's again, it's hindsight bias. It didn't work. Therefore, it's a bad play. It's a well designed play. You got the look you wanted. It should have been a, it should have been like a 30 yard gain. Here's, I don't here's give my a counter. What you're going to say. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Go ahead. ahead. Matt, let's mark that to make sure we believe. Um, (laughs) Here's my counter. You're running it with Jonathan Williams and Carson Wentz. We have had how many reps in practice together? I would have liked probably B. I I agree. I would have liked B Rob in there, but B Rob, like we talked about and came out, I don't know if it's ever come out, but really banged up. He was banged up. Yeah. So he also just gotten a ton of yards. And by the way, and he had been out the previous play because they showed him on camera. On the broadcast, yeah, that's right. That's running right back on the onto the field, and they pulled him back out. God, and yeah, at that point, I'm going, no, 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 no. So that's thing one. Thing two is it's like an awkward, weird pitch situation, and it is in a situation where Brian Robinson at the time Was is averaging seven. I, I feel like he bobbled it a little bit. The timing got a little bit oh. off. Obviously, what you're saying is the bigger issue. Um, right. And maybe I'm misremembering it. it. Um, but I just also, remember it looking yeah. very disjointed. It might have been because there was pressure immediately because Terry didn't block the right guy. I will yeah. give you that. And, and I'm not saying you're... Obviously, all your analysis is correct. I'm actually now very excited to go back and pull the film and do a little advanced yeah. edit that I'll throw on YouTube uh, at, at youtube.com slash at Craig Hoffman. Great. So we, we'll be able to see all this and people will still get mad uh, in the comments section despite the fact that the film is staring them in the face. But... It's an it's a probability possibility type of thing. Is it well drawn up? Yes. Is it the simplest solution to achieve the goal? Absolutely not. And like that is the I think the larger frustration where it's like, hey, you know what Brian Robinson's doing? Averaging seven three a carry. That is cemented in my mind because I tweeted it at the time. I looked it up and I was like, isn't he yeah. averaging? And he a was lot. seven three at the time. How hard is it to turn around? And hand him the ball. And it's because they haven't done that consistently that it's frustrating. So yes, in isolation, this might have been an actually a great call. And it might have been something where if your most reliable player doesn't have a brain fart, which is something you don't count on because he's you your most reliable player, that it works out not just to achieve the goal, but to achieve far more than the goal. But sometimes simplicity is the best thing. And for Carson to have this kind of awkwardy pitch to your backup running back, who's actually your third string running back, who when they probably haven't had almost any reps together, and your your good guy, your best guy, I don't want to call it because Jonathan Williams is a good player, your best guy is available and you don't use him in the most critical of situations on a routine basis, to me that that speaks to a larger problem 
of them in short yardage consistently making bad decisions. And it gets to the point where if I'm Ron Rivera, that's got to affect my decision to go for it or not as well. If we consistently fail in short yardage, then the numbers, the data, the analytics don't apply to us. We are bad in that situation. We should stop trying. We have the best punter on the planet behind us. Just kick the ball away. Yeah. So I will also say this. A uh, couple things. I think you bring up great points. Like what? I think it helps you. You said you have... didn't give a bleep what I was going to say, and now I got some good points. Let's well, go. I'll, I'll say this. I do think B-Rob should be in the game there. Yeah. If anything, it helps the play because they think they're going to run inside, and he's shown the ability to get to the perimeter. Two, I would also like to point out that the design of the play bringing the motion allows all the interior offensive line to get their blocks to the second level. So, again, kudos there. Also, I think good offensive play calling subverts expectation. So if you look at the San Francisco game, if you look at any time they've gone for it on fourth down, it's been like a dive right at the middle, right? The 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 the, the fourth down against San Francisco for the the for the goal, the the goal mm-hmm. line situation, dive, quarterback sneak. I like that they're under center. The the threat of quarterback sneak is there. Yes. I like that they're uh attacking the perimeter of the defense because they're subverting expectation, and it's one of the reasons you're able to get to the perimeter. Now, was there a uh, missed execution? Yes. Was it by one of the best players on your team? Yes. Um, do you count on that? Absolutely not. So I understand that. I understand that it's a little bit higher risk, but I like that it's subverting expectation. I like the design of the play I like because it's putting your guys. This is something we haven't really seen, again, from the staff. You see it elevating your personnel, right? I, I mean, I think it's a good call. And I, I would not. Okay. In, in I the, think it's in, a better call than I did on Sunday after hearing your explanation. Um, but it also does get to like, how many reps do you think they spent on that versus how many reps I, do they have this I year agree. at Duo? You know? I agree. I agree. And I think that's the other thing just generally. They only ran Duo like one time in the game, twice in the game. So it's like, it's not like that was like a big thing for them. They put in like a new game plan run, like which is a GT, which is where they were getting a lot of yards. So kudos to Scott. But eventually, uh, the Browns figured it out and then hit it in the chin. Like it's just about like having some flexibility with your run scheme. I think it's important. Um, but I, in terms of call, you know, like if you're if you're process driven, you say good play design. It's and that, that's the other thing that I think is good about it is the position of the defenders. Right, the safety is lined up inside of Terry. So if they're running an inside run, that's a hard cutoff block for him, but it's easy to block down, which again is is very very frustrating because it's like it's there. And Curtis, man, what a block on Miles Garrett. Like that, that would have been me really worried. Crushes that. And so all the hard stuff was taken care of. And then that's the thing that, that falls down, which is too bad. But again, I understand fans' frustration. I, I do. I get it. But if you're if you if you if you look at the process, you get checks all the way across. It's just the execution. And maybe it's because I played the fo- in the league for a long time, but like that process the players definitely certainly get some blame. Yeah, uh, that, for this. the process the process of that is good by Scott. You know, and that's something that I can't always say. All right, uh, what the initial thing that uh, I was going to ask, but we got very uh, appropriately sidetracked by a very good sidebar on that play was uh, at that point Curtis was or uh, Brian was averaging like seven point whatever a carry. Yeah, he finished with like three point six. Yeah, what happened to the run game? Well, I do think like they, they had some success early with the game plan run that I just described, which is the GT. So you're going to pull your backside guard and tackle. The tight end's going to cut off the defensive end, and you get big bodies to the front side. And they actually murdered with that. They did a really good job with that. And then they get into like this 
I don't know why they like it so much. It's like a tight zone run. And they've been doing a good job calling it as a compliment to duo. So if I'm in the dot as the back and the tight ends to the right, duo hits to the A-gap to the tight end side, okay? Mm. If it's a tight zone run, it's going to hit away from the tight end to the uh, to the to the other A gap, so the left A gap in this look, right? So what happens is when you run duo, everybody runs downhill. They they stick on blocks really nicely, and you kind of hit forward for a cloud of dust. Everyone thinks it's duo. Everyone thinks it's duo. Then you call tight zone, and you're able to kind of squeak out the front door for a big game. Obviously, a complimentary run to your duo play, or duo is a complimentary run to your tight zone play. However, right. you want to look at that. They just kind of swung for tight zone like a bunch. And I don't really get why they were so, like, infatuated with that. Um, I don't have a good reason as to why that is. But it, it wasn't as efficient for them when they got into that stuff. And then, obviously, Cleveland deserves credit. They figured out the GT play, and they started spilling the, the, the tackle, like hitting the tackle and kind of making a big pile. And there wasn't a lot of space for the running back. So, adjustments by Cleveland, interesting run selection by Scott. And then not really having a counterpunch off of it, I thought, was... Uh, was disappointing um let's mark down for some point in a later discussion of like why they got away from the duo counter yeah the basis of their offense um maybe they ran a little bit of counter they ran some counter but the duo thing was surprising for that that eight week stretch where that was like their thing yeah and it worked and then all of a sudden they stopped doing it and i was like wow look they have a play action game and then they don't um which is which is disappointing Hey everyone, this is Brett Boone. Would you know it? I've got a podcast going strong in our fourth year. Tune in as I sit down with my friends, some of the biggest names in sports, media, entertainment, for a lot of fun and in-depth conversations. As you know, baseball's been my life. It's been in the family for a long time, but it's a lot more than that here. It's sort of like taking a ride in a golf cart around a beautiful track. Join me every week for multiple episodes on the Brett Boone Podcast, available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Last thing on the offensive side, uh, and I don't know. At this point, it feels like we have a seven-segment podcast. Uh, we've been going for a while, but like this is really good stuff, so whatever. Uh, take a man podcast from Odyssey Sports, Craig Hoffman, Logan Paulson. All right, the question, and you talked about this uh, a little bit yesterday when you were on the show with me, but I want to flush this out a little bit more. What do you do at quarterback this weekend? Ooh, uh, yeah. Seeing how the O-line played, understanding where they are as an offense, what do you think they sh- – I'm, I'm going to ask it this way. I don't care what you think they will do necessarily for the purpose right. of this question. Okay. What should they do? Like, What is the correct, in your opinion, choice for Sunday? Yeah, obviously what I would do is what I think is different than what I think they will do. Um, part of me – I know I've been like this guy who's been like very anti-Sam Howell. Like he shouldn't play, he shouldn't play. But part of me is like – I don't really care if he plays great. If he doesn't like whatever, if I'm Ron and I know I need to go into this off season, making some decisions at quarterback, I probably want to see him play a little bit. Like, and I don't know if that's, he plays the second half, he plays the fourth quarter. I, I need to see where we're at, you know? And again, 
how much has he practiced this week? How much has he practiced at all? Like those are all yeah. things that need to factor. He definitely has, got a lot of reps, or like for a backup, he seemed to get a decent amount of reps because they talk they talk about it publicly. That was, like they yeah, tried to that give him some like, more reps in the middle of the season yeah. because he was all of a sudden one snap away and he hadn't practiced at all. And Taylor knew the offense, so they gave him some extra reps compared to a normal backup in that window. But that's the only time he's practiced with the you know with his team, his offense as opposed to being the scout team t- guy all year. That's good recollection, yeah. And it wasn't – so he did get more reps than usually the backup does, but we're talking – it's not like a lot of reps. It's right, like, he got maybe, like maybe four instead of two. Yeah, right. And, and usually – so the backup usually gets zero. He's getting like two a period. So you have an eight-period eight practice. You're getting like 16 on the day, right? So it's not like he's getting a ton of practice. He's getting a little bit of practice, which is good, which is, which is unusual and good for him. So I, I want to see where he's at. But again, like there's a lot of things there that might – prevent me from that if i'm wrong like he's not good in meetings he hasn't practiced in a while right because he isn't he hasn't even been doing scout team recently right because of carson and taylor that whole situation so um i'd like to see him but if not i probably start taylor and uh if sam's not ready based on whatever kind of discerning factor you know meeting meetings are bad if he does yeah, practice and you're saying week. if that you don't that you have yeah I, I don't know that. i have no yeah, idea yeah. like 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 these are all speculative things right like let's say he but we do let him practice this week and he looks terrible and looks unready and doesn't know the offense as well as we'd hoped i'll probably just say hey taylor you get the whole whole game but if he if he's showing signs of life if things look good i might let him run in the second half or the fourth quarter whatever it is yeah so everyone wants to throw the brock purdy example in and i just would tell them that you're you're talking about the best situation any quarterback can go into, which is playing for Kyle Shanahan in a highly insulated offense uh, with all of the details and accoutrements that Logan has talked about uh, that this offense lacks. Um, You're talking about being able to turn around and give the ball to Christian McCaffrey 20 times a game. Uh, You're talking about having George Kittle. And obviously Kyle is the best at keeping his quarterback's job. Very simple. And also, each late round pick and they is have different. the best defense. They have the best right. defense in the NFL. All, like, all that. It's but a like good also Brock, Brock Purdy was a, a seventh round pick because his physical tools are not overwhelming. Right. right. His mental processing wasn't net, like it's not first round caliber. Uh, otherwise, he would have gone higher. Uh, but the reason he falls is because he's fairly unspectacular as like a prospect. Right. right. Not, a, not a guy who scares you walking off the bus. And not that Sam Howell is walking off the bus, but the second you see him throw, you're like, geez. Yeah. I think he's got like the fifth strongest arm in Madden. Just to like oh, give really? perspective. Wow. Like his his throw power's strong. <laughs> Sam Howell was a fifth round pick because he his his mental processing and his accuracy were not up to what his physical tools were. So we're talking more Malik Willis, less Brock Purdy. Right. Like not that he's going to run around like Malik, but like Malik can't operate from the pocket. And the, 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 the concern is that Sam cannot do that either. Maybe not to the level of Willis, but certainly not, uh, maybe not even to the level, uh, you know, on the other end of the spectrum as Purdy, like who would you trust more tomorrow? Brock Purdy or Sam Howell? Probably Brock Purdy. Yeah. Um, and that's that's kind of the point that gets lost in, in when people throw out the Brock Purdy thing is like, OK, well, how's it going for Sam Ellinger? How's it going for uh, Malik Willis? How's it going for Zach Wilson, who went one, two overall? Like, yeah, physical tools and and intrigue don't necessarily translate to right. readiness. With that said, I'd play him um, the, whole, the whole time. I would. And here's what I here's how I would justify it. I want to know how he handles it and what he looks like in a real game 
going into this offseason. It is a data point that I would love to have, and there are no consequences, win or lose. And in fact, you can make an argument that it's better off for the organization if we lose because it will help our draft stock in some way. Um, so that is the only thing that matters in terms of the record of this game. They're, like you finishing 8-8-1 eight, eight, and one versus 7-9-1 and one does not matter. Uh, in terms of playoffs, in terms of anything that you typically try to win games for. So then it becomes about data collection and how, you know, I want to see, and the reason I would do full game, Logan, versus a half is when I tell Sam Howe, hey, kid, you're the starter. I want to see how he reacts. I want to see if he takes that responsibility with the seriousness and the opportunity. And even if he goes out and plays terrible, but he has a good week, that tells me that going into next offseason, I know where he is. And I think there's real value in that. So I hear you. If he's going to go out there and proverbially throw up all over himself and just going to be a ton of false starts and delay of games and he's going to throw the ball into the dirt because he doesn't know what he's doing and you're, you're actually setting him up to get hurt and you're, right. you're saving him from himself, okay. Um, but that also, by the way, is a data point that is not good. Correct. Um, but, and, and I think the other thing that you always say that I appreciate is like, he's a fifth round pick. If he were to turn into a good backup, that is a successful selection. Right. But I want to know if I can at least trust him to do that. Like, right. is he the guy that I can trust to be the backup going into next year? And so the last part of it that I would say to to push me towards Howell still, with all the caveats you put out there that I think are interesting and worthy of consideration, is I want him to have that experience. Because there is no more important offseason to me in pro sports than your first to your second. Because you now know what it takes to play in the league. And it is your chance to go into your offseason work with an idea of what it's like to operate at game speed in the NFL, what it's really like to be out there. And Sam Howell does not currently have that. The closest right. he's got is practice. And so I would like him to have that for him going into this offseason. And this could be accomplished in a half. So if you want to you want to, you know, kind of split it and say, all right, hey, we're gonna give you the second half. But I want him to go out there against Michael Parsons and Demarcus Lawrence and uh, digs and, and all these dudes and be like, Oh, if I'm going to win in the NFL, I have to be able to beat that. And I want right. him to have that data point for himself. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that's very valid. And I think, uh, if we were coaches, we could better make this assessment, right? Like we could yes. see like where he's at. We could talk to him. We could, you know what I mean? Like I saw him come out of Ron's office the other day, you know, like Ron gets to have that conversation with him about whatever Ron is thinking and get a beat on the kid. You know, like I told you, I've played with a whole bunch of different styles of personality in my career. And that's a huge factor. You know, like if he's emotionally ready for it, yeah, man, let's see what it looks like. But yeah, ultimately, like we're kind of shooting blind here. We're making assessments in the dark. So all, all I can say is I, I agree with everything you said. That's all important stuff. It really just depends on Sam. And also it depends on Ron and Ron's goal for the game. If Ron is hell bent on getting to eight and eight, you start Taylor Heineke, right? If if you yes. feel like you have to win for optics or whatever, that's got to go. If you want to evaluate the young guys, right? I don't know where Ron's at with this, but if you want to do that, then I want to see Chris Paul. Agreed. I, I want to see Sam Howell if if we deem him appropriate, right? Can mm -hmm. Percy Butler get like a half or a quarter or something like that? All right. those, you know. Yeah, so, there's no reason to bring Cam Curl back. Like, there's no real reason to bring St. Juice back. Like, let those guys heal up. Put Christian Holmes out there. Put Percy yeah. Butler out there. Like, you want some of your veterans, some of your starters, some of your regulars, because you want them to be able to play with NFL players, not just against right. NFL players. But select opportunities for specific young guys who you want to be a part of your future 
in a bigger way, those guys should get extended time. Yeah. And, and it's again, like it, th- those are all things that you need to, if we had practice film and we understood what was going on, we could make some of those assessments, but that in a perfect world, they're all ready to go. Let's get them out there. Let's see what they got. Cause I think, you know, Christian Holmes was a guy they thought was ready. And I think that's a perfect example. He wasn't quite ready. He played, he did some good things. Yes. But he wasn't quite ready. That's a good data point for us. But I also he also didn't like totally throw up all over himself. You know, he went out there, played against NFL talent. Didn't look great, but I think he's going to get better. At least he had his legs under him. Are all the other guys in that same boat? And that's really the deciding factor in this. I think. Right, he's got to have his legs under him. Um, I would think that Hal. I don't know. Hal's also got, got a little bit of gamer to him, so I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. just curious. Like, hey, throw him out there. Let's see what happens. You know, sure. and th- there's a curiosity element that I think is probably the largest driving force in the fans' desire uh, to right. see to I see get them. that. Um, it's not the most important thing, but like, let's not pretend like we don't have it. Like, let's not pretend right. like we're not curious to see. I'm curious uh, what as Tim, heck. Yeah, Tim Howard. Take Man Podcast from Odyssey Sports. That's Logan Paulson. I'm Craig Hoffman. All right, Logan. Uh, we've been going forever, but uh, we should talk about the defense quickly uh, and what they they saw, how Cleveland was able to adjust and, and their offense get on track in the second half. Obviously, a huge part of that is going to be John Allen. And one of the things, or in his, his departure from the game due to injury, one of the things that I said on my show on Monday was, in a way, Allen leaving that game cements that you have to resign to Ron Payne this offseason because it shows when you have those two guys in there this defense is special when you don't one of them leaves especially you know look john is a tremendous player in his own right no matter who he's playing next to but one of them leaves and it's it's not nearly as scary for the opponent yeah and i think you know what i went that's something i I agree with i think they're going to make a big effort and and at at a minimum you need to find a way to franchise pain and trade him get some type of value whatever whatever that equation looks like you can't just let him walk out the door if you can't pay him enough money because i know you're gonna have to back up the big big truck for him and maybe you can't afford that but make sure you're getting something for how exceptional he was this year um yeah i think uh you know right after the game that was my thought that you know like you need both those guys in there you definitely need one because Payne literally like took over that game he just did an excellent job breaking double teams getting penetration did an awesome job of that. And then also Washington made some adjustments in the second half to kind of slow down the run game. They saw the types of runs they wanted to run. That was one thing that I think I undervalued in the postgame pod was the novelty of the runs that they were running. I'm talking about um, Cleveland. Yeah. Like they just weren't ready to fit them. And that's a big that's a big deal. Like when you talk, when you look at the defensive ends and they think they're getting duo, but they're actually getting like a pin pull to the outside, like that, you're just not prepped for it. And I think Jack said something similar, and they came out in the second half and did a much better job with that stuff. And the biggest run was a quarterback run, which is which are always hard to defend anyway. And they hadn't shown that run either. So kudos to Cleveland for kind of making that run game really challenging. I think overall, the front played pretty well, even in the absence of John Allen. Uh, you know, Chase, Montez, Payne did a great job. Ridgeway did what Ridgeway does. Um, you know, Bada got in there, did some good stuff. Um F.A. Obata did a really nice job creating pressures, and you see his high upside. Casey, that whole front, Jay, uh, Jamin had an excellent game. Mayo did a nice job. I think the area of the team that 
really struggled specifically was the back end, you know. Right. And it, you know, Danny Johnson had a had a good game. I thought he did some really excellent things. Yeah, Danny showed up a lot, made a lot of plays. And he and he did. He made a ton of plays and did a great job. Uh, you know, Kendall obviously misses a tackle on Cooper mm-hmm. that ends up being a big play. And if he makes that tackle, there's probably not a touchdown. Um uh Deshaun Watson makes a nice throw to David and Joku on second and nineteen versus cover two, like right where the ball needs to go. That's probably his best throw of the day. Uh, and then I think Forrest, I'm going to give credit to this, although I don't know, appears to be involved in at least one coverage bust. And then I don't know who the other, other coverage bust is. But Forrest, I felt I felt like in his expanded kind of cam curl filling role has been the, the one who suffered the most over the last couple of weeks. And I still think he's a fantastic player. He's did some excellent things in the game, but he's not as... He's the guy you're pairing with Cam Curl moving forward, not the right. guy that you're hoping uh, can fill Cam Curl's Curl. shoes should Curl miss more time. Right, exactly. All right, uh, anything else on the defensive side that is worth talking about uh, on a bigger I, picture? I think just the big picture thing from them is that they, they did, I know the score might not reflect it, but they played with great effort, they played hard, and they made plays. Uh, specifically the front. I was just really impressed with them. And if you really boil it down, it's five missed opportunities. And I think that's the nature of defense and why there's so much variance in defense is you have to be, quite frankly, perfect. And that's just not a a viable thing, right? And so they just, again, five plays was really what it boils down to. And uh, that's annoying and frustrating to hear as a fan, but that's what happened. Right, but that's, I think the the really more frustrating larger picture thing is those five plays come at the behest of positions that we've known were a problem all year. And some of them going back to last year, like we knew that corner depth was an issue last season, right? Like we knew, yeah, I know Mayo and Jamin were good, but I feel like there's one or two of those that like maybe Mayo uh, is is not in great position for. Just like he's not equipped um, to run with a David and Joku or whatever it was. I'm I'm trying to remember the play. There's one. Yeah, where, so like, I'd, I'd he's say the overall, guy chasing. They did it. Yeah, oh, it was the the missed tackle by Kendall. Like he's right. Okay, so yeah, that one's that one's obviously that's not, not on him. Not on him. But like but, again, I understand that. But I think yeah. this was the best game. I have to go back and look at it again, but I think this is the best game Mayo's played. And again, they did a good job of kind of keeping him in his wheelhouse. And maybe right. that's what you're talking about. You have to kind of right. keep him well, in his wheelhouse. It, the, the defense has certainly fallen off the last couple of weeks where Cole Holcomb is out. And like, if you can't survive Cole Holcomb going out, like you got a depth issue. And, yeah. you know, that's something that we knew coming out of last year. But and to that, your point, that, I will that say that is this. kind of the frustration I would say is like, you knew you had some of these problems. You didn't address them. You got away with it for a long time because you stayed healthy. And the second some of these guys go down, you're toast. And now, granted, they still only gave, only gave up 24 points in a game where their offense gave them nothing. This is by no means a fault of the defense they lost this game. But if you're going to look at where some of the breakdowns happen, you would hope they would be like Jack has done a really good job after, you know, first rough couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, Jack's done a good job. Generally, the staff is is seen as doing a really good job. Where the defense could improve is in a personnel capacity. And I think the frustrating part is that was something that was known going into the season. It was never really addressed. And then at the worst possible time, it kind of rears its head. Yeah, and I think to your point, I I agree with the quarterback depth. I think that was something that we all knew. And it's interesting, though, because was it an issue when uh, Well, the, the, the question is like, 
did you know that William Jackson III was bad yes. and you should have just cut bait? And the answer was probably yes. Although, right. you know, he had a better spring, so maybe they got Yeah, he had a pretty good hope. spring. So, so I guess that that is that is a factor, but sure. I agree. The quarterback... But the fact is, is you missed on a $40 million corner and, like, there's going to be consequences to that. We saw those consequences. Yes. And I think that's, you know, I think they should draft a corner highly in the next yeah. draft or a free agent, whatever. I do think they've done a good job of kind of... Uh, lowering their their value for the linebacker position mm -hmm. in this defense because i don't think it to use the yeah. term we use for quarterback all the time yeah and it's not that big of a deal i the thing that's surprising coming out of this stretch and the first couple of games that cam missed is literally how important he seems to be just from his absence of getting it must be communication or playing the multiple roles and having the intelligence to be the post the the box safety the buffalo nickel you know whatever it is because, you know, I think Jeremy had an excellent game too, but is out of position on some coverages, right? And if Cam's in that role, he's in the right spot. You know, the coverage bust last week on the Tampa 2 invert is on Forrest. The coverage bust this week in terms of cutting is on Forrest, right? And so is Cam communicating things? Is he just being able to do all these different positions? So to me, that's something that I would look at is why is his absence so critical to that coverage unit playing successful? Is it just because no one knows the defense the way he knows it? Because, you know, I, like I said, I think Mayo was okay. And I think Jamin actually played pretty good. And, you know, Bostic, when he was in there, did a good job. But you take Tam, Cam Curl out, you know, and that's that's in the absence of, of Holcomb. But you take right. Cam out, and it's like the, the, the results speak for themselves, I think. Right. Uh, they're 0-4 in the games that he hasn't played this year. So right. that's, that's less than ideal. Uh, all right. That is probably the longest podcast we've ever done to the point that, I don't know, maybe you're actually hearing this in two parts. Uh, we'll talk to Matt about how we're going to divide this up, uh, but that's good football information for you uh, on the Wednesday pod as we record this on Tuesday. Uh, so hopefully we will, uh, you know, there's there's some meat left on the bone uh, for, for the Friday show. Uh, I do think we will obviously have plenty to talk about as there will be a quarterback decision by then how they match up with this Dallas team and, and any other big picture things, players we want to look at. We'll take a closer look at on the Friday show. Uh, make sure you're subscribed wherever you're listening or watching right now because there is always more to come. We will continue in the offseason as well. Uh, you know, we'll probably go back down to two days a week and we'll, we'll figure all those details out. But uh, this pod's not going anywhere anytime soon. For Logan, you can also follow on Instagram, by the way, at Logan underscore Paulson 82. I'm Craig Hoffman. I'll see y'all on the radio and have a great rest of the week.